Well, good morning, church. It's lovely to see your faces today. Uh, a couple just small things. If you notice the doubling on the screen, we're trying a new product with 3D glasses. Have you seen those? If you didn't get them at the front, you put them on and everything leaps out at you. It's really exciting. I don't know what's going on. I'm sorry about that. Um, welcome online guests. We're glad you're with us as well. Uh, I just want to say a couple things before we get started. One, um, last night was the Zambia fundraising dinner. It was a huge success, a lovely event. Um, I want to extend my thanks to the Zambia team for their work in putting it together. I see some of you out here. And uh, Dave, can we share some? Uh, we've, how close are you to your 30,000 need? Twenty-eight thousand and a half uh, toward the thirty they needed to raise. Wonderful, incredibly exciting, and so Kim and Brandon are going to have their fence. Um, it's a real joy to have these times where we come together as a community and celebrate these things, uh, and it's exciting. So thanks to the team, and I'm excited to celebrate with you all uh, as you go and to hear the good news about what you guys have been doing. So uh, we are this week. We're going to talk about Jeremiah some more. And we're going to talk about a couple things. Um, we're going to talk about the use of the old in the new, how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. So uh, a bit of teaching you how to read well, how to read your Bible well, how to interpret Scripture well. And that's the first part of the message. And then we're going to shift, and we're going to talk about how God has authority in our emotional lives, which is kind of the point of the text. But I'm going to teach you how to read it first, and then we'll talk about these points together. So let's get rolling right away with our primary scripture reading. It's going to be from the book of Matthew. We're early in Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. Jesus has just been born. Uh, remember, the Magi come and bring him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We don't know how many Magi there were, but there were three gifts. And on their way in uh, to it, they, get, they talk to Herod, the king, uh, who, and they say there's another king coming, and we've come to celebrate him, and Herod, uh, a bit threatened in his own power, is like, oh, there's another king? Tell me about him. And before they leave, an angel warns the Magi not to speak to Herod, and so they skip town, and then Herod is very angry. And this is where we pick up the text, Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 16. I'll read it from my Bible. It'll be on the screen as well. Then, when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up! Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, this is a famous passage and a very grim passage. Sometimes it's called the slaughter of the innocents. That's the name of this event, the slaughter of the innocents. And what we have is a frightened power who feels threatened and insecure in his role by this birth of a threatening another king, and he orders the extermination of all the children aged two years and under in a region. 
Now, in case you're wondering about the timeline, this means that the Magi probably don't arrive on the night of Jesus' birth. They, they arrive sometime within a two-year window of Jesus' birth. Um, so there's now, if you, some of you have romantic ideas about the Magi coming, and I'm sorry, I've burst your bubble. But here we have Herod. Herod is despotic. He's wicked. And this is an utterly unjust event. There's no excuse. There's no justifying what he's done. And in the middle of this event, in the middle of commentating on it for us, Matthew takes a moment to highlight something from the book of Jeremiah. Let's look again at verses 17 and 18. He says, Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Let's focus in even closer on that word, fulfilled. What does Matthew mean by saying that Jeremiah's prophecy from Jeremiah chapter 31 is fulfilled by this event of the murder of children? What does he mean by this? So there's a couple explanations. One of them is perhaps a little too obvious. So there are weeping mothers in Bethlehem right now because their children have been killed and weeping mothers in Jeremiah. Therefore, Jeremiah's weeping mothers and Bethlehem's weeping mothers layer on top of one another. This is a kind of simple explanation for this. This means Matthew, in writing, is involved in a kind of like theological word association, right? Weeping here, weeping there, bada bing, bada boom, interpretation. That's how it would work. And I don't think this is what's supposed to be doing. It invites a bigger question. What precisely did Jeremiah prophesy? Like, what was he saying was going to happen, and how was it fulfilled? Does Jeremiah say that Herod will kill babies? Is that the prophecy Jeremiah makes? Does Jeremiah say that Israel will weep because of political injustice? What's the prophecy? So what happens then is we take a look back at Jeremiah 31, and we find that this interpretive situation becomes far more complex. So look with me now at the original passage. This is going to be Jeremiah chapter 31. I've lost my bookmark, so be patient with me for a second here. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, and we'll look at this passage together, beginning at verse 10. There's my bookmark. Excellent. And again, the words will be on the screen, but let me read this for you now. Jeremiah writes, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare in the coastlands afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who is stronger than he. They will come and shout for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the beauty of bounty of the Lord, over the grain and new wine and oil, over the young flock and the herd, and their life will be like a watered garden, and they will never languish again. Then the virgin will rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old together, for I will turn their mourning into joy and I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return from their own territory. Now, I hope you can hear, even from this Quick reading and overview that the situation in Jeremiah 31 is very different from the situation of Matthew chapter 2. 
This is a very different kind of story. And maybe I'd like you to focus with me, especially at verse 16. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Restrain your voice from weeping. So something else is going on. And let me see if we can ask some questions to figure out what this is. Question number one, who is Rachel? Who's Rachel in this? Well, Rachel is one of Jacob's wives early on. Jacob and Leah, uh, Rachel and Leah were the two wives of Jacob, and here she represents the mother of all Israel. She's been dead for a long time at this point, but she's representing the mother of Israel, okay? Why is she weeping? Why is this figurative woman weeping? Because her children, Israel, are exiled and scattered and lost. There are Babylonians and Assyrians on the horizon. They're taking people away, and she has a sense of all of my kids are gone. How will I get my people back? And so this is why she's weeping. And therefore, why does God tell Rachel to stop weeping? Why does he rebuke her weeping? Because that's the most interesting part. There's a couple of different answers. Partly because God has promised to restore her children. He's promised justice. And because in the throes of her weeping, she's so wrapped up in her grief, she's missing the fact that God is doing something new. She's focused inward, and she's missing that God's doing something new in this. And second, she's so focused on her present circumstances that she's completely missed God's work. So what's the prophecy? What's God prophesying in Jeremiah chapter 31? He has promised to restore Israel, but it hasn't happened yet. That's why it's a prophecy. It's coming in the future. I will restore my people. I'll bring them all back. They'll rejoice. There'll be joy. There'll be joy where there was mourning. There'll be something new where something old had come. And so the message of Jeremiah 31, the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, is very different on the surface level from what's going on in Matthew chapter chapter 2. So how do we resolve the disparity? How do we solve this, this, what seems to be a conflict between these two things? Well, one thing we can do, we can claim that Matthew, the author of the gospel, doesn't actually know his Bible very well, right? He doesn't actually know. He was just, he did kind of a word search and he found weeping and he was like, yeah, that'll work. And he just pulled it together. I don't think that's the case. Okay? Let's just be clear about that. Uh, we can claim that Matthew takes the Old Testament in a patchy kind of hodgepodge way. He's just, he's like, ah, I'll just take from here, take from there. I'll just use it how I like, which is maybe how a lot of us like to read the Bible. We like to take the verses we want, just use them however they seem to fit our present circumstances. I don't think that's Matthew's way either. Because what I think is happening is that Matthew is drawing our attention to the Old Testament passage from Jeremiah to make a more significant point in Matthew. Matthew's taking this passage to make a significant point. Let me give you this interpretive principle. Here's what I think is going on. Every time a New Testament author quotes the Old Testament, that author quotes a context. Every time a New Testament author quotes an Old Testament passage, it could be one word, a phrase, a whole passage, when every time that happens, they're quoting not just that phrase, they're quoting a much bigger piece. They're drawing from that. The passage gets cited, comes from a texture of Old Testament passages, sometimes from a theology of Old Testament passages. And in its original context, you know, Jeremiah 31 has a direction, has an order, has a purpose, it's going somewhere, and it's doing something. And now that context is being brought to play in the, in the story of wherever it's being used in the New Testament. I'll say this. In every single New Testament text I've read where there is an Old Testament wrestler, it's every single one, they have always been quoting some context. Always. There's always something going on in the background. I have yet to find one where there is not this kind of context. And if you find one, show me. It'd be great to see. Um, I've not been there. 
So what does it mean for our interpretation of Matthew chapter 2 and the slaughter of the innocents? Well, Matthew does not quote Jeremiah 31, Rachel weeping for her children, in order to sympathize with the weeping mothers of Bethlehem. It's not just a kind of open sympathy, feeling bad passage. He quotes Jeremiah 31 to draw the promises of Jeremiah to the grief of Israel. God has promised something, and now that's going to be fulfilled. Herod murdering babies is not the fulfillment of prophecy. The fulfillment of the prophecy is that the promise of restoration made by Jeremiah, the promise of return from exile, the promise of God's justice and power, the promise of rejoicing, these things are coming true right now in the baby that's just been born. What Jeremiah looked forward to just happened. It's coming. And this is what's on the horizon. The arrival of King Jesus means the end of wicked kings like Herod. Herod was right. This new king is a threat to him. He was right. The arrival of King Jesus means that God is fulfilling his promise to restore what was lost. He's bringing things back into newness of life. The arrival of King Jesus means that the great work of God to restore his people, the work promised in Jeremiah, is here now. And so Jeremiah rebukes weeping Rachel because God's work is at hand. And Matthew likewise rebukes weeping mothers in Bethlehem because the king of justice has arrived. The arrival of the king transforms and is greater than your present grief. It's a far more challenging passage now, isn't it? Something different just happened. So, there's no word association model of quoting Old Testament scripture. Instead, it's this wise, measured, pointed application of Old Testament promises and pictures to a story in the New Testament. And just as an aside, or maybe as a first point, every time you're reading your Bible, if you come across a passage from the Old Testament, I encourage you, flip back to the Old Testament passage and read the whole chapter. Don't read just the thing. Don't read just the verse. Read the whole chapter and then see how is this applying in these things. And I think you'll find some amazing things are happening. These Bible authors are incredibly clever people. Incredibly clever. Cleverer than us by a long shot. And this will make us wise readers of the Bible. So let's take from that interpretation and let's move into something more specific. Because let's talk, because I think the passage deals with God's authority over our emotions. That's part of it. And I want to talk about that authority right now. So here's again the situation in Matthew 2. Mothers have lost their babies at the instigation of gross and violent justice. For a moment, put yourself in their position. Put yourself imaginatively in the position of these mothers who've lost their children. Imagine their grief their rage, their sense of bitterness. It's uncalculable, the sense of pain that these people are feeling at this time. And so, into this grief, Matthew and Jeremiah say these words, Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping. Restrain your voice from weeping? That is the most audacious thing in the world. It's unthinkable. Who on earth has authority to tell mothers grieving at this level of pain to stop it? Well, the answer is nobody on earth has that authority. Only God has the authority to step in and say that. No human no worldly leader, no pastor, no spiritual authority. Nobody has that authority. Only God can step into this place and say something like this. But, and here's what I want you to hear, if God has the authority to do it here, he has the authority to do it with every other emotion you experience. 
If he can tell grieving mothers to restrain your voice from weeping, he can tell angry men and women to put a check on it. And this is what I want you to hear because I think God has the authority to call out and to edit our emotions. He has the authority. He can call you out for it and he can tell you to edit it. He made you. He made your emotions. He knows what they're for. He knows what he wants you to do. And he has the right to rebuke your emotions just like he has the right to rebuke any other behavior you have to tell you to change. And maybe the key point, and this is where we're going to hang everything else, is this, that emotional formation is a key part of our discipleship. Being formed emotionally, being governed emotionally by the Lord God is part of what it means to grow in Christian faith. And I want to give you some models for how I think this works this morning, because God wants to form the whole person, your reason, your will, your emotions. And by and by, I think emotions are mostly neutral. I don't think necessarily there are good and bad emotions. They're just giving you information. But what you do with them as Christians makes you godly or ungodly people. And the training process of how you respond can be painful. So let's break it down for a moment so we can understand this process of emotional formation a little better. And I want to begin with a brief theology of emotion, just a brief theology of emotion, a few kind of statements about this. So statement number one, emotions are a gift from God. Emotions are a gift from God, right? God made you. He designed you. He gave you emotions. And when he finished making you, he said, very good. He likes it. He likes the way he made you. And he gave you these things as a gift. Therefore, your emotions are good. Anger, good. Fear, good. Pleasure, good. Indignation, good. God made them. He wants you to have these things. They're good. But this gets us to the second statement. Ready? You are not your emotions. You are not these things. You feel them. You experience them. But they don't summarize your life. Okay? Within each of us, there's actually a, 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 a kind of a triumvirate of things. We think things, we feel things, and we choose things. They're at play. Uh, but we all feel these things. They don't uh, govern our lives. So let me tease this out some more. Uh, we get slighted, and what happens? We feel angry because we got slighted. We get ignored, and we feel some self-pity. That's a lovely emotion, isn't it? You can kind of nurse it and work it around in your belly, self-pity. Uh, we get hurt and we feel sad. We walk into a dark basement or an alley and we feel fear, right? Very little people, very few people walk into a dark basement and think, oh, joy, right? It's, it's a lot of fun. Maybe someone notices us and we feel elated, a sense of delight. Or uh, someone compliments us and we feel cheerful, right? Or the sun comes out and we feel optimistic. These, all these things are neither good nor bad. They just happen to us in these ways. And they're simply bits of information we're getting about our inner and outer lives. They tell us about how life is going, but they aren't us, and they don't summarize our experiences, and they are not the most important thing about us. And one of the main reasons they're not the most important thing is this third statement I want to make, which is this. You always have a choice in how you respond to your emotions. Always have a choice in how you respond. You don't have a choice about the emotion. The emotion is. It's just information. It's going to happen to you, but you do have a choice about how you respond. So someone in the zipper merge cuts you, or they don't wait their turn, and they cut you off, and they put you at risk and your car at risk, you may experience some anger at that moment, right? You get some anger at that moment. 
but I am not my emotions, therefore I have a choice in how I respond. Right? Maybe there's a fire and someone you know or love is inside the building that's on fire and you regard the fire and you probably feel some fear. Fire involves death and pain and harm. But because you are not summarized by your emotions, you can make a choice in how you respond to that situation, right? Or um, maybe everybody's forgotten my birthday and I'm feeling enormous self-pity and I begin to plot my revenge, okay? I'm embittered and angry and I'm going to get back at all these people who didn't wish me a happy birthday on Facebook this year. Unbelievable that they are around. But I'm not my emotions, right? And I have a choice in how I respond to these things. We each have these choices. So, like I said, we've all got these three faculties within us. We have, uh, we call them, we think, feeling, thinking, and choosing. So you've got your emotions, uh, which give you information about how things are going on. It's an information source. And you've got reason, which allows you to think through situations. But you also have will. It's the third power entirely, the power to choose. And choice of the will is one of the most important features of your inner life. Um, and allow me to illustrate this through uh, marriage for just a moment. Because uh, when we go through premarital counseling with couples often or when we talk to people, you'll find in general that men skew towards what they call reason and women skew towards what they call emotion. I'm not making this hard and fast, so don't panic about these things, right? Um, and let me, let me pick on the men for a second. Have you ever been in an argument with your partner and you said the words, hold on, let's be more rational here, right? But what you meant was, to say to your partner, could you stop being so emotional? Because you have a preference for the feeling of being rational over the feeling of whatever emotions are being brought to you, right? And some funny things are going on. But you know what? Behind both reason and emotion, however you skew in these things, is your matter of choosing. You're choosing to be with this person. You're choosing to love the person. You're choosing to be in relationship. And choice sits in priority over both your reason and your emotions. Marriages are sustained by the will, not by your feelings. That's what keeps you going. That's very important to know. <clears throat> so, the same thing is going to be true, actually, of all our emotional states. I use that kind of interesting example. We experience an emotion, whatever it is. Let's say love, fear, happiness, amorousness, sadness, self-pity, pride, optimism, indignation. We always have a choice about how we respond to that emotion. Your will always has a way to operate within this. And one of the most challenging choices we face is responding to some of the really strong emotions, like intense grief. <clears throat> it seems to want to overwhelm us, take us away, but we still have that power of choice within it. And I want to highlight a very difficult passage for you right now. It's Ezekiel chapter 24. Uh, Prophet Ezekiel, he had probably the worst life of, I mean, Jeremiah had a pretty bad life. Ezekiel also had a really bad life. So I, maybe I shouldn't compare them. I think if they're comparing notes, it's bad for everybody. But Ezekiel... He's been commanded not to publicly grieve for events that happened to Israel. At one point, he's commanded to be silent. <laughs> he just has to walk around quiet. I think he's naked for a good portion of the time. Like, I mean, you think your life is bad. You know, it's okay, maybe. Anyway, so here I want to highlight one of the commands to Ezekiel that God gives in chapter 24, verses 15 through 19. So, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold, I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. He's going to his wife is going to die. But you shall not mourn, and you shall not weep, and your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban, and put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. 
So I spoke to the people in the morning, and in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, will you not tell us what these things you are doing mean for us? Now, I'm not suggesting that this is a plan of action for any of you who are grieving at the moment, that I'm going to take Ezekiel. That would be the one-to-one association, right? You're grieving. Ezekiel is grieving. Shut up, right? Like, that's the kind of pattern that's not right. But God is saying, Ezekiel, you do have control over your emotions, and I am calling you to this role because by being silent and not grieving, you are going to tell something to these people. And now they're sitting here. People are watching him, looking, saying, what is going on? Ezekiel should be overwhelmed with grief in the moment. And he goes on to say, in the same way that I don't have time to grieve, you will not have time to grieve when God brings his judgment upon you. It's a very terrifying message in its own way. But the main point is this. Ezekiel did have control. And he was able to lay his grief aside for the sake of his specific call to serve God in this way and the message that was brought to him. Now, we are not called in the same way. I'm not suggesting that any of you have received a call like Ezekiel's call. I'm not telling any of you who are in a state of grief to shut up and do things like this. That's not what I mean. I am saying that within the scriptures and the testimony of the word, we recognize that there is a check between our emotions and how we respond. We have control over these things. So actually, that's getting us into our strategies. Let's talk about some strategies for how to develop our emotional life together. Emotions are God's gift to us. They're separate from us. They're not wrapped into us. And they always present us with a choice. So what does the formation of emotions look like given these parameters? Here's a couple strategies. Strategy one, place a check between the emotion and your response. Place a check between your emotion and the response. I'd like you to look with me at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Lovely, lovely verse, where we see this principle illustrated through the emotion of anger. Paul writes these words, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Lovely thing about this first phrase, be angry is a command. It's not a suggestion. You ought to be angry. Feel your feelings. Let it, be, let, it, let it be, I don't mean that song, but let, let it show up in you. Let it rise. It's there. Feel what you feel, but do not sin in it. And that means putting a check between what you feel and how you respond. Giving God a moment to say, uh, is this right? Are you supposed to feel this way? Are you sure? Right. We need this sometimes. We need to be put in that place. I, uh, I'm reminded of the book of Jonah. Uh, the prophet Jonah, right, is supposed to go preach to the Ninevites, and instead he runs the opposite direction. And we find out later the reason he runs the opposite direction is because he would prefer for the Ninevites to be destroyed. In fact, after he preaches his five-word sermon, the most pathetic sermon in history, 40 days more Nineveh gone, that's all he says, and the whole city repents. Right? As a way to show that it really wasn't about Jonah's testimony, it was about God's power to do these things. And then he hides, he goes to a high place, and he sits down, and he's waiting for God to smite the city. He's fine, I preached, now kill him. Right? And he gets angrier and angrier and angrier. And Jonah chapter 4.4, it says, the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? I get it. You're angry. Do you have a good reason for this? And I think this is the question God gets to ask us about all of our emotions. Do you have a good reason to be bitter? Do you have a good reason to feel self-pity? Do you have a good reason for your optimism? It's good and bad, right? 
You're feeling kind of amorous. Do you have a good reason for that? Are you aware? And we're giving God a moment to query and ask questions about our emotions. And this puts us a check between the emotion and how we respond. And that's the very first and most important strategy, and I want to encourage you, if you only hear this one thing this morning, I want you to hear this. God wants you to put a check between how you feel and how you respond. Give him a moment to say something. I don't know about you, but I've got a parent, I've got four young kids, I need to hear this too, right? I finally get home, I put my feet up, I'm ready to be quiet, and four people want my attention, and my first response is an emotion of, just leave me alone, right? Is that... Is that the right emotion? Is that how I should feel? How does God feel about my kids? How does God feel about me? If I can put that check, maybe I'll respond differently. Right? And I think you all have, you can all imagine similar scenarios where you need this. All right, that was the first strategy. Put the check. Second strategy is this one. I want to challenge you to cultivate godly emotions. Cultivate some godly emotions. For many of us, Uh, I don't know if you thought about this, but your emotional life is at the mercy of your environment. You feel things because you experience things. Sadness, because someone you know has died, it's a reaction. Loneliness, because plans were canceled, again, it's a reaction. Anger, because we've been hurt, it's a reaction. Our emotional life is terribly reactionary, and that's partly how it's designed. But in the Christian life, and as we develop towards maturity, we have the opportunity to cultivate godly emotions apart from circumstances. Apart from our circumstances, we can begin to cultivate these, and it's not at the mercy of happenstance. And I want to highlight three of these, and I want to give you some coaching on how you can do this. So, the first emotion that we cultivate faithfully as Christians is compassion. Compassion is the first emotion we have to cultivate. And we're commanded to do this, actually. It's an emotion we're commanded to feel towards one another, to feel a sense of openness and compassion towards other people, especially for the poor and needy. And one of the very best ways to grow in compassion is simply to look around. Simply to look around. Let me look, at, look with me at 1 John 3.17. But whoever has the world's goods, so if you've got wealth, and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, literally shuts his guts, denies compassion, you've got something Someone you see has nothing, and you're like, you, you, you squelch the feeling of anything going on. And John says, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, the motto for this is going to be fake it till you make it. <laughs> Don't wait to feel compassion to be compassionate. Be compassionate whether or not you feel compassionate. And that's one of the ways we become people of godly emotions because we recognize that our obedience to the command to be compassionate is bigger than just doing things when we feel them, right? But the way we, tar- we trigger compassion for us is by paying attention to the people in need around us, right? Second emotion is hope. The second emotion is hope. And in the same way that we get compassion by looking at the needy, I think we get hope by looking at the promises of God. We study and attend to his promises. What has God said he's going to do? How has God promised to answer us? How is God going to fulfill his word in the future? And we get that, of course, through the study of word. That's the promise from Jeremiah 31, isn't it? There in the midst of suffering, there's no end in sight, but God says, you can hope on the things I'm going to do and look to those things. Now, my definition of hope is this. It's confidence in the present that gives you, excuse me, confidence in the future that gives you power in the present. 
I have confidence in what God's going to do in the future. And because of that confidence, I've got power right now. Now, again, if you're waiting to feel hope, um, yeah, it's going to be reactionary. But you can study what God says and study his word and you can memorize his promises and you can build hope in these things independently of the reactions of life around you. And a hopeful person is someone who is convinced and knowledgeable of these things. I want to point to one of the great verses of hope, maybe one of the most ironic in the Bible, Job 13, 15, where Job, who's lost everything, says, though he slays me, yet will I trust in him. Though he kill me, I will continue to trust in him. My hope is in the Lord, not in my circumstances. Now, is that an emotion? What are the emotions Job is feeling at the moment? Grief, sadness, shame, misery, self-pity and spades, anger, all sorts of things. How does he choose to respond in that situation? I will look to the promises of God, even though I don't feel them. It's the cultivating of godly emotions. Third emotion as we wrap up is praise. Maybe you don't think about praise as an emotion in this way, but in the same way that you look to the needy and experience compassion and you look to the future and experience hope, if you're going to look at God himself, the proper response is praise and worship and giving glory to the Almighty. Now, praise in its most basic sense is speaking the truth about God. Speaking the truth. Speaking the truth to one another about God. Speaking the truth side by side about God. It means that in our times of public worship, when we get together, these are times of emotional formation. This is an emotional formation greenhouse. We're gathered together around the presence of God. We are reshaping the people we are by looking to him and getting our eyes off of ourselves. We fix attention on God. We give glory to him. We sing for joy. We weep with meaning. We grow in our compassion. We certify our hope. And through it all, we give God his due. I'm going to read one more passage for you. And as I read, I'm going to invite our musicians to come up and take their place. And this passage is Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. A brilliant, beautiful passage. It's quoted in Jesus' ministry at the beginning, and it's got some great phrases in it. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus says, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the hope of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, and now verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. We get to respond to the hope that God has given us by giving him praise, and he transforms us. He puts the mantle of praise upon us so that our hearts are transformed and our emotions are glorified, and we become people who exalt him in everything. So when we praise, God gives us the strength to testify to his goodness even in the midst of our worst trials. And we get to praise him together now. Will you stand? And let's, except for Sarah, will you stand? And let's exalt the Lord together now. And I invite you, if uh, we have prayer ministers available this morning, Clive and Debbie are, I think, going to be over in the 23rd Street exit. And we have Andrea Hevner is going to be upstairs. This is Andrea over here. And we are so glad. If you need prayer, go and receive prayer. George, also? Canvin is here too. Let's sing and exalt 
our God this time.